I forgot to say, well, good morning, church. Just wouldn't be the same if I didn't do that. It's good to be together. It's good to come around communion together. It's good to sing together with my family, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then to come around God's word. There's our spiritual food and nourishment right here. There's nothing like it. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians in a moment. Mildred was the church gossip. I'm sorry if your name's Mildred this morning. Mildred was a church gossip. She was a self-appointed monitor of the church's morals. She made sure people behaved themselves. She kept sticking her nose in other people's business. Most of the people in the church did not approve of her extracurricular activities, but feared her enough to maintain their silence. Well, she met her match, however, when she encountered George, one of the newer attendees to the church. She accused him of having a drinking problem. And she not only told him, but of course several other other of her friends. She made this accusation based on the fact that she saw his truck, his truck parked outside of the one bar in their town. She said to George, I see your truck parked outside of that bar and everyone knows what you're doing in there and that you obviously have a drinking problem. Now George was a man of few words, so he just stared at her never bothered to tell her that his pickup truck broke down right in front of that bar. He was waiting for it to be towed, so there it sat in front of the bar. He didn't deny. He didn't debate with her. He didn't say a word. Once he got his truck fixed, however, he drove it over to Mildred's house and parked his truck in front of her house and left it there overnight. (laughs) Yeah, you got to love George. You guys are all rooting for George there. I saw that. But I ask, how often have you jumped to a wrong conclusion based on limited information? I mean, have you been hurt by gossip? Have you harmed someone else because of your loose lips? Did you run with something before checking its credibility? I believe it was Milton Berle who said, you can't believe everything you hear, but it's fun to repeat it anyway, (laughs) right? Why? Why is there so much pleasure in hearing and sharing of bad news? And the damage that has come to the church through spreading of hurtful information. Well, I want to look at the flip side of that this morning. Those of you who read ahead going, I don't know where he's going with us. Hang in there. I want to see the flip side of that this morning. What if instead of passing on bad news of others, we made more of an effort to share good news? What might that do to the church community if we practice good gossip, if you will? Good gossip. And by good gossip, I don't mean a juicy morsel of information that our flesh just delights in in hearing, oh, that is good. Not that kind of good gossip, okay? Good gossip, what I mean is sharing positive stuff that's happening in people's lives, that's happening in your life. Why don't we spread that around? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Scripture says. And just as bad gossip doesn't improve anyone's life, and it affects those around you in a negative way, bringing good news can improve your mood and help to build up the church. So why not 
Why not up your good gossip meter just a bit? Imagine, imagine its impact on others. Well, in the passage today, and this you, now you'll see the connection. In our passage today, Timothy, who was sent uh, to check in on the church, uh, he returns with a report uh, to Paul as to how the church is doing. And as we're going to see here, it's, it's good news that he shares. We're going to see the positive effect of that good news, that, that good gossip that it has on Paul and, and, and Silas. And so if you're not there in your Bibles, look with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. We continue in our study, a sermon series on vital signs from 1 Thessalonians. And we want to check our vital signs as a church, which is made up of people, so we all have to check it. Now you'll recall, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they founded uh, this church in Thessalonica uh, before being driven out of town by some unbelieving Jews who were jealous of them. The team of three spent a few weeks with these new believers. But they maybe even spent as much as uh, two months before being forced to leave. And that really isn't a lot of time to really ground these believers in the truth. Paul, as we saw last week, had hoped to visit them again, but he was unable to do so, that he chalked up to the efforts of Satan who stopped him. So Paul goes on to plan B. He sends Timothy to check in on them. And Paul, in the meantime, likely had feared the worst. Perhaps the, the persecution, he thinks, got to these new believers and, and, and they abandoned their faith. So Timothy heads uh, to Thessalonica and from where they were in, 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 in Corinth, that would be about 220 miles uh, and, uh, and on foot one way, uphill in the snow, no shoes, you know how it goes, right? Well, whatever it is, it took probably about 10 days on foot for Timothy to go to um, Thessalonica. So it was 10 days there. Then he stayed, we don't know, maybe a week, maybe two weeks in Thessalonica. And then he heads back, uh, which took another 10 days at the least. And then by the time Paul sends Timothy to check in on them, to the time he returns, we're close to a month. A month of wondering how the church was doing. And so Paul waits and he waits and he waits for Timothy to return. What's he going to bring me? What's he going to tell me? And so we pick it up in verse 6, which is shortly after Timothy's return. He comes with a progress report. Paul then writes this letter to the church under the inspiration of God. These are words of God for us this morning. These are not human words. These are God-breathed words, and they're for us. And, and, and so we need to keep that in mind as we read this. Because we see the, the humanness here of Paul and his team. Now, here's my, here's my three points for this morning. I'll give it to you up front. Keeping in contact, making an impact, and then asking God to act. All right? So it's keeping in contact, making an impact, and asking God to act. First of all, keeping in contact. Look with me at verse 6, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. 
See the sentiment there of Paul? Uh, I mean, we understand it's tough to be apart from the people we love. We can all think of times when we had to be away on business or or away for some other reason and we miss our family, we miss our friends, right? We kind of understand that. Prior to to being married, uh, Donna and I were apart for a year while she attended Bible college in South Carolina and I was living in Massachusetts. Now, it wasn't the days of horse and buggy. We had cars. (laughs) But it was before the days of cell phones. Imagine that. And uh, emails and FaceTime. We had to either write letters. Yeah, yeah, I mean write letters. Mail them. Take a couple days to get there. A couple days to come back if there's a return letter there. Uh, And we we send it. Or or we just rack up uh, quite a long distance phone bill. Which... I did that too. But whether it's staying in contact through writing or common use of modern technology, nothing beats being together in person. We felt that through the whole time of Zoom. And the good news that Paul receives is that the people long to see him just as he and Silas long to see them. But until then, every effort is made to keep in contact with him. That's why he's writing this letter. That is why he sent Timothy. We saw that last week uh, in Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy. Now, I remind you of the purpose in sending Timothy. It wasn't out of a a wrongful desire to stick their noses in others' business, but it was out of concern for the things that really matter. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. Paul wanted to know about their faith. And I paused there and I asked myself this question. Is that my greatest concern? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing in your faith? Is that our biggest concern? Is is that what drives us to keep in contact with other people? Well, Timothy, he brings good news about their faith and love. Verse 6 says good news. And when we we see the words uh, good news, our minds immediately go to spreading the gospel, proclaiming the good news of salvation. And, And that's usually how that phrase is used. But here... Good news, we're to take that at face value, at its basic form, and it's the announcing of news that is pleasant and positive. It's good gossip. And the things that matter the most, their faith and their love, they're not only surviving, they're thriving. What good news that he reports back. Now, what about those who are to visit Living Hope or they keep in contact with us as a church, what do we give them to report back to others? Good news? I just bumped into someone from Living Hope. Uh, you know, let me tell you about, they're really doing well. Ooh, I don't, it's a mess. What would others say about our faith and about our love? Now, I find it interesting also here in verse 6, that Paul seems to care about their view of him. It's worthy, it's worthy of Paul's mention that the report Timothy gives here is that they have pleasant memories of him. Now think about this. I suppose that they could have blamed Paul and his team for the mess they left behind. 
I mean, think about it. Paul, while in Thessalonica, remember, in Acts 17, tells us a story. It caused quite a stir. He was boldly speaking for Christ, remember? And it resulted in Paul and his team being forced out of town and left the church there who were associated with Paul to feel the brunt of the persecution. Thanks, Paul. But that's not their attitude. Paul takes great comfort in hearing they had pleasant memories of him. It could have been different. They weren't bitter. They didn't play the blame game amidst the adversity. They had no resentment. They didn't distance themselves from Paul. They didn't say, I don't want anything to do with you. You just bring bad, bad hardship on me. They had pleasant memories. Do we give cause for pleasant memories? Now, what strikes me about this contact with the church is the nature of the good news that is shared. It's news about their faith and love. Now, I don't want to stretch this further than it should go, and so work it out with me. But I do want to ask, how involved are we with others that we know how they're doing in areas of faith and love? Let's be honest there. I mean, consider the things we talk about when we get together. Now, I'm not suggesting at all, please hear me on this, I'm not suggesting that every conversation has to be heavy. I'm not saying there's no place for chit-chat or talking about our common interests or, or joking around or keeping it light. I think you, most of you know me well enough to know that I don't see a need to turn every conversation into something really heavy and spiritual. Here we go. No, 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 this is a place for the light stuff. All right, hear me on that. But here's my concern. My concern is that often the things we talk about don't really matter. I'm concerned that we're talking about, we're not talking about the real issues of life and matters of faith and practice. We all need help there. As Paul Simon wrote, it's an obscure song, most people don't probably know it, um, The Dangling Conversation. The dangling conversation. He says, in the dangling conversation, the superficial size of the borders of our lives. In other words, we're not talking about anything that really matters, even we know there's a big stuff going on. Are we speaking of things that really matter? Are we talking about things of faith? Do we really know how others around us are really doing spiritually? I'm not saying stick your nose in everybody else's business. Let's do some life on life and say, hey, something doesn't seem right here. Are you okay? Are we close enough to, to be able to ask that question and give someone else permission to ask you? I know the busyness of life, keeping contact with others can be so easily neglected. Are you a contact keeper or a contact breaker? All right, we turn to the result of keeping in contact, and it's making an impact. Second heading, making an impact. Verse 7 begins with the word, therefore, connecting it to what went before. Therefore, brothers, verse 7, and all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. I want you to see the effect of good gossip here in these verses. See what positive reports of others can do for our faith. This progress report encouraged Paul and Silas. And the meaning of the word encouraged is the word strengthening. See, the good news was given to Paul at a time when he needed it. He didn't know what was up. They come in, Timothy comes back and says, I got good news for you. 
Good things are happening over there in their faith and love. Proverbs 15, 23 says a person finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Who could use a timely word right now? Do we know? I mean, it would suggest that we know a little of what's going on in someone else's life in order to even give a word that sustains the weary, even give a timely word. And I suppose we have no idea, really, of the impact of that word spoken on a Sunday morning. Some, safe to say, some have come into this building this morning with a heavy heart. Some have come into this building this morning and they're weary. Some aren't even sure if they can take the next step. Some are fearful of what's going to come in this coming week. Some come into this room this morning and you feel beat up. Been a tough week. Scripture, again, tells us that the tongue has the power of life and death. Proverbs 18, 21. A word spoken this morning to others, guess what? Or maybe to, to someone this coming week, they're either going to be life words or death words. For Paul here, these words brought him life. Look what it says in verse 8. I love this verse. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. Now, J.B. Phillips' translation nails it here. It says, to know that you are standing fast in the Lord is indeed a breath of life to us. It's as if Paul, while he was waiting for Timothy to come back, not knowing really how they're doing, perhaps fearing the worst, he's holding his breath. You know that feeling. Now hearing the good news, he can go, you can breathe again. I'm sure you know that feeling. To know that a child comes back to the Lord, it feels as though you can breathe again. As you hear how your good friend is holding up through some difficulty, you can breathe again. To hear that voice on the other end say, I'm going to be okay. It's breath of life to you. You can breathe again. Now for some of you, maybe particularly parents, it's as if right now, perhaps you're, you're holding your breath, you're waiting for your grown child to come back to the Lord, or you're holding your breath because you're, you really wonder where in the world your teenager uh, is spiritually right now, and you're Perhaps it's, it's a friend you're concerned about or a sibling or, or a parent and, and you'd love to breathe again. Oh, to hear some change in that person for the good would be to really live as Paul expresses it here. And you're kind of holding your breath and some of you, that's where you are this morning. I get that. I do. But I don't want us to miss the kind of impact this good news brings. Not only can they breathe again, but they cannot say thank you enough to the Lord. Look at verse six, uh, excuse me, verse nine. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Now our English translation can't really capture the extent of Paul's joy. It literally says all the joy with which we rejoice. 
It's a joy that's just off the charts. The impact on Paul and Silas is this overwhelming joy that they aren't even sure how they can repay God for what he has done. Words of thanks to God don't seem adequate enough. And they cannot find a way to thank God for the overflowing joy they are experiencing. It's as the psalmist declared in 116.12, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? And the answer is we really can't. What I want us to see here though, is that my perspective? Is that our perspective? Am I overflowing with joy because of your growth? And do you see the kind of impact we have on each other as we keep in contact? We need it, church. This, this stuff here, this, this, this idea that we say, oh, my faith is between me and God. That might be American, but it's not Christian. Scripture would not bear that out for you, sorry. Because my growth as a believer has an impact on you, and your growth as a believer has an impact on me, and our growth together has an impact on each other. It's just the way it is. And a sign that we're really living here at Living Hope is that by keeping in contact with each other, we are greatly impacted by how good God is. That's why it's such good news. We, 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 we can leave here and we can leave our community group and we can leave our times together over a meal with, with some others and some friends with an overwhelming sense of gratitude to God. We have to leave impacted by time spent together. We're to leave and go, wow, God is so good. Thank you for sharing with me and your, and your, about your life. And see, it means we really have to do more than coexist, doesn't it? We have to be involved in each other's life for it to really have impact. I, I likely shared this story with you before, but according to the Associate Press, back many years ago now, a Dallas, Texas man had a disagreement with a bank. His home sat adjacent to a piece of land on which the bank planned to build a new facility. The bank wanted to buy his home and knock it down. 90 years old, the man had lived in his house for some 50 years. He didn't have to sell his home. He decided he wouldn't. The bank wanted to build, so it decided it would. The results? A new bank building that was shaped like a horseshoe around the man's home. An automatic teller machine, the story says, that it dispensed cash 15 feet from where he slept. The cars of the drive through customers idled in front of his kitchen window. Two parties adjacent to one another, but hardly could be called neighbors. We might sit near someone else on a Sunday morning. We might even serve in the same ministry as, as someone else, or attend the same Bible study, or, or attend the same community group. And we just coexist. No, no, no. We need to let others in to see what God's doing in our lives. We need to let others know what God is doing. That is good news that makes an impact. And we walk away and say, wow, how good you are, God. I don't even know how to repay you. I want more moments like that. Be honest. I have them. Thankful for them. Maybe I need to 
do a little more too. Likely. There's one other way I want to talk about this good news that made an impact on Paul and Silas. Verse 10. He says, night and day we pray earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Notice here, he reminds them of his constant prayers for them. That's kind of the impact of the good news coming back. He said, night and day describes the frequency of his praying. It's a figure of speech. Not only do we see his commitment to praying for him, but he prays how? Earnestly for them. It's not this frivolous prayer. It's not simply praying so we can check it off on the list and we can see the person say, prayed for you. No, he's praying earnestly. Prays with intensity. His heart's cry, as you see here in verse 10, is to see them again. I mean, writing to them is good, but nothing beats being in their presence. I mean, I love FaceTime with my grandkids. I'm thankful we have it to stay in touch, but being with them is, in person is better. And so he longs to see them again, and I can't help but think of the three degrees song, When Will I See You Again? When will I see you again? When will we share precious moments? Will I have to wait forever? Will I have to suffer and cry the whole night through? When will I see you again? It's a love song, right? But the sentiment here is Paul wants to be with the church again. I mean, is that what we're thinking on Wednesday? Can't wait to be with the church again. When will I see them again? <laughs> Now, it's uncertain for Paul when he will see them again. And the reason he wants to see them, let's not miss this, is not only because he misses them, but also he cares about their spiritual walk. He wanted to be with them again so that he might, notice it, end of verse 10, supply what is lacking in their faith. And the thought behind supply what is lacking is to restore something to its working order. It's to cause something to be in, uh, in condition to function well. They had some gaps in their spiritual understanding. And Paul, remember, Paul and his team had their teaching cut short. So there's some deficiencies concerning the content of their faith. They needed more instruction. Paul's eager to give them that for their well-being. And the next two chapters in Thessalonians, as we go forward here, address some of those areas where there may be some deficiencies in their faith. Paul doesn't want to end his thought here on those deficiencies, but he concludes this section about the good news he received with a prayer. He lets them in on what he's asking God for. Paul and his companions allow the church to listen in on their prayer. He gives them good news in a form of a prayer we see here, asking God to act. Third heading, asking God to act. Now I'm going to hit these verses rather quickly. But I do want to touch on it. Verse 11. Notice verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Now many commentators have noted that the prayer here is the form of a wish. But what's different about simply wishful thinking is that God can actually do something about what we wish for. That's why the first word in the original our translations don't capture it, but the first word in the original is the word himself. It's in the emphatic position. It places the emphasis on God acting. God himself must be the one to act if this request is going to become a reality. God, he's asking, do something. And what is he asking him to do? Well, he's asking that God would stop Satan from hindering his plans, as we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 18, and clear the way, open the way for him to see them again. 
God, make a way for us to see these people. That's what he's praying. Where Satan messed up our plans, God, made the roads impassable, clear the way. What's your impassable right now? What is that? You know, it can't ever happen. I can't get through that. No, it's not. What is your big ask right now? What is it you're calling on God to act? Notice how personal this is. Will God answer this very personal need? Just clear the way for me so I can get? Absolutely. He asked God to clear the way for him to see them again. And remember, Paul wanted to get to them to supply what was lacking in their faith. They needed more instruction. He doesn't want them to stop growing. And that's why he says in verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase. You're doing good in the love department, but may it increase, may it overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And as we come to chapter 4 in a couple of weeks, we'll see uh, Paul address this matter of their love that's to continue in increasing measure. Paul received good news about their love, but listen, there's always room for growth. As someone put it, there's always room for improvement. It's the biggest room in the house. <laughs> yeah, it is. When Pablo Casals reached 95 years old, a reporter, young reporter, threw him a question and said, Mr. Casals, uh, uh, you're 95 years old. You're the greatest cellist that ever lived. Why do you still practice six hours a day? Mr. Cassells answered, because I think I'm making progress. Wow. See, our goal is to make progress every day of our life. There are places where I need to grow, and there's places where you need to grow. Church of living hope, keep growing. Don't grow stagnant. Do you know <laughs> that there's a, a fear um, of growing up. Yeah, it's like Peter Pan. Many people have fears or reservations about growing up. Fortunately, most of us get over it. But there's actually a bizarre, tragic exception known as, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but gyroscophobia. Fear of growing up. That's what it means. A recent article in Case Reports in Psychiatry describes one a case about a 14-year-old boy who tried hard not to grow up. He wouldn't eat very much food because according to his own research, food contains nutrients needed for physical development. In addition, he adopted a stooped posture to hide his height and began to distort his voice using lower volume and higher pitch than usual. And if people came along and told him that he's taller or older, he would actually become extremely upset and even cry. Due to the restriction in food intake, he had weight loss of close to 30 pounds. Now, after treatment, Two doctors reported the boy had improved, but they added this, and this is, this is the rub right here. The patient continues to express a fear of commitment and responsibility that he feels will be required of him in adult life. Don't we all have that fear? I wish I just didn't grow up. I now have responsibilities. Okay. Do you have a fear, though, of growing up spiritually? Don't write this off. Don't go that nonsense. I want to think about it. Do you have a fear of growing up spiritually? Are you comfortable staying right where you are spiritually? That way, 
you won't have to take on any more responsibilities. The church might ask me to do this if I start growing. No, I'm going to stay right where I am. You might be afraid of the commitment that goes with it. Check that. But listen, Jesus didn't save you for you to stay where you are. The gospel is not only about what you've been saved from, but also what you've been saved to, and to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of Paul's prayer here. Look at, look at Paul's ask on behalf of these believers. Basically just going to state it, and you can, you can work it out and think through on Verse 13, may he strengthen, may he strengthen your hearts. So you be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones or holy angels, more likely. But I want us to see it. This is a beautiful prayer. From Paul's lips, that's very instructive on how we can pray specifically for others. He received good news. He writes good news to them by sharing with them this prayer. I had to be encouraging. Now, church, there is so much bad news in the world. Let's be intentional of being a bearer of good news, good gossip. Each year, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg gives himself a personal discipline challenge. Supposedly in 2010, he set out to learn Mandarin. In 2013, he set out to meet a new person every single day who doesn't work at Facebook. In 2014, Zuckerberg revealed that he's challenged himself to write one thank you note each day. In a Bloomberg Businessweek cover story, he vowed to write a well-considered thank you note every day via email or handwritten letter. His reasoning, he says, it's important to me because I am really critical person. I always kind of see how things can be better, and I'm generally not happy with how things are, or the level of service that we're providing for people, or the quality of the teams that we built, and so I'm critical of everything. I need to force myself to write a letter every single day. Douglas Conant, the former Campbell Soup CEO, takes this practice to the next level. Conant says he wrote at least 30,000 thank you notes to his employees over the course of his 10-year career. It's a lot of writing. He committed about an hour each day to writing thank yous, which is an eternity in a busy Fortune 500 CEO schedule. He usually made time for it during his commutes or while traveling. But he said this. Most senior executives develop the skill set that's largely based around critical thinking. They get really good at it, and they tend to really develop that muscle of trying to critique things more than compliment them. I have to fight that. I've told you before, I, I fight cynicism. It's easy sometimes to really state the obvious. But there's another muscle we need to work That's of complimenting others, showing how much we appreciate, giving good news, because words wield incredible power. Are our words gospel words? Do they convey grace and gratitude? Are our words consistent with the gospel? Good gossip reflects our confession of the Savior. Let's take, let's be 
a bearer of good news that reflects the redemptive nature of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I I just thank you for including this in your scripture to us. It could have been missed. It could have decided not to. And we could have really gone from one flow of thought of last week into the next. And from our vantage point, not missed a beat. But you said, I want my people to have this. Thank you for communicating with us these words here this morning. May we take it to heart. May we realize, oh God, that it's not about what we can just do on our own and we leave here and go, I'm just gonna try harder. Sure, that's, there's something to that, but really, God, it's about saying, work through me, work in me, change me. I can't do this on my own. I can't carry out any of these sermons on our own. We can't. We need you. We need you. That's the cry of our heart this morning as we close out. In Jesus' name, amen.